please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open with me and your copy of the Word of God to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts 17, and we'll look at verses 16 through 34 today. As Nick has already read and mentioned, this is our sermon text, and it deals with the Apostle Paul in Athens, Greece, as he was waiting for some companions to go on to his missionary calling at this particular time, uh, Macedonia, in order to share the gospel. And so we'll look at these verses this morning and consider Paul's reaction to Athens, Paul's interaction with the Athenians, and Paul's presentation of the gospel. Athens was a proud and intellectual and cultural city in the Roman Empire. It boasted of its rich philosophical tradition inherited from the likes of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It was also a unique place for literature and art. It was known as the cultural center and the intellectual metropolis of the Roman Empire and the entire world at this particular time. And so Paul's friends had given him a safe escort from Berea, and they had left. And so Paul found himself alone, and he asked them to send Silas and Timothy to him as soon as possible. Paul was hoping again to return to Macedonia. That's what his original call was to go to. You can learn that from Acts chapter 16, verse 10. And so meanwhile, as Paul waited for their arrival, he found himself alone in the cultural capital of the world. How did Paul respond? How did he handle this opportunity as a Christian in Athens? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because that's the question I intend to answer this morning. What should be the reaction of Christians who live in cities or societies which are dominated by pagan ideas, moral bankruptcy, and spiritual darkness and ignorance? How do I conduct myself as a conscientious follower of Jesus Christ. Well, this passage offers encouragement and instruction to us as Christians concerning our reaction and our interaction and our presentation of the gospel to a culture dominated by non-Christian thought and practices. We're living in that kind of culture today. And Christians have a tendency not to say anything sometimes for fear of what might happen. But we learn from the boldness and the spirit of the Apostle Paul that the gospel must go forward. And the Lord uses men and women, young people, in order to facilitate his kingdom. I want you to see these three things this morning in the passage. Number one, Paul's reaction to Athens, and we find that in verse 16. And then secondly, Paul's interaction with the Athenians, and we see that in verses 17 through 21. And then finally, Paul's presentation of the gospel in his message or speech or defense, whatever you want to call it, in verses 22 to the end of the passage. And so with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. And let's ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing, might be self-effacing and Christ-honoring. To your holy name. Lord, forgive the preacher for his sins are many. Help us to see Jesus and him alone. And 
We give you the praise and glory for all that you will do in our lives. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice Paul's reaction to Athens. And you see that in verse 16. And I want you to notice in particular what Paul saw first and then what he felt. What he saw and what he felt. This was a grand opportunity for Paul to be a tourist, to do Athens, as we would say. The building and the monuments of Athens were unrivaled. We had the Acropolis, that ancient Greek citadel, visible for miles away. We have the Agora, with its many porticos painted by famous artists. This is where debates of statesmen and philosophers took place on a regular basis. And Paul was a man of culture and taste. Remember that. He was, in our terminology, a graduate of the universities of Tarsus and Jerusalem. And God had endowed him with a massive intellect. And so a guy like him could really enjoy a place like this. He could have easily been spellbound by the city's architecture, the city's history, and art. Yet, it was none of these things that struck him. I want you to notice what Paul saw first. It was not the beauty nor the brilliance of Athens, but its idolatry. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, verse 16, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city of idols, or the city full of idols. The Greek word communicates smothered with, or swamped with idols. One person was quoted as saying, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a man. <laughs> there were so many pagan temples, shrines, statues, and altars. Everywhere there were images of Apollo. He was the patron saint of the city, as well as Jupiter and Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, and Asclepius, the god of healing. There was beauty, Many of these shrines, many of these temples were made with gold and silver and ivory and marble, fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors. But Paul was not blind to the beauty that he saw around him, but the beauty did not impress him if it did not honor God. And the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was oppressed by the Athenians' idolatrous use of God-given talents and artistic creativity. And this is what Paul saw, a city submerged in idols. And ladies and gentlemen, so often that's what we see in our own day, in our own country, in our world. We see glamour, we see glitz, we see money and power. But beyond it all, the spiritual sight sees idolatry. And we can be sucked into it so easily. And so I want you to notice that the first thing Paul noticed really was the idolatry. In fact, the Greek word there, he observed, he looked carefully. It wasn't just a passing thing, as if he were a tourist. No, Paul looked at those idols and realized the trouble that these people were in. And that the name of God was not honored. And that's what Paul saw. Now notice what he felt. The text says in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him. It's an interesting Greek word. It's a uh, Paroxuno originally had a medical association, was used of a seizure or an epileptic fit. It also meant to irritate, provoke, arouse to anger. So what's going on in the Apostle Paul? This is the term that is used repeatedly in the Septuagint. 
which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the term used for God's reaction to the idolatry of the Israelites. You remember over and over in the Old Testament, the Bible says God was angry with jealousy for his people. Even in the book of James, the scripture says he jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And so Paul used this terminology. And remember, Dr. Luke is writing the book of Acts. We have no way of knowing how Paul felt. But Paul probably told them, use this word, because this is exactly what needs to be communicated. This is what I felt. I felt the same sense of jealousy for God's holy name. It was aroused within me whenever I saw all of these idols. He saw human beings giving to idols the honor and glory which were due to the one and only living and true God alone. He was jealous with a godly jealousy. He was zealous to see God's name adored and lifted above the nations. You know, there are a lot of incentives to share the good news with others. We think of obedience to the Great Commission. We think of compassion for the lost. We don't want people to perish in hell forever. But you know, the one great balancing motive is zeal and jealousy for the glory and for the name of Almighty God. Whenever we're zealous for His name, we know that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when we see it not happening, there is a sense of zeal and jealousy for God's name. And that has a tendency to keep us balanced also. You know, some people go to one extreme or the other. If they're not zealous for God's name, they bring it down a step and they say, well, I just want to be obedient. I want to check that off my list and do it. Or I have compassion for the lost. That has a tendency to water down the message. And sometimes we can get so zealous to share with others that we lose sight of the balance of love and compassion and sensitivity that we need in order to share with others. No, zeal for the name of Almighty God creates a balance when it comes to our obedience to the Great Commission and with all the other motivations that go with evangelism. And so Paul's reaction to idolatry in Athens was not exclusively negative, the horror and the dismay, but also positive and constructive. It led him to witness. Indeed, Paul's reaction to the idolatry in Athens led to his interaction with the Athenians. I want you to mark that. We Christians have a tendency to treat the culture in one of two ways. It's Christ away from the culture or Christ absorbed in the culture. And what the biblical model is, Christ transforming the culture. That is, we're not to back away from pagans altogether. And we're not to become totally absorbed in their thinking. That's what the liberal church has done. The liberal church in North America looks so much like the world that you can't distinguish it anymore. Because it's always trying to find out what is the world doing? It has a man's perspective when it comes to outreach to other people. It certainly isn't metaphysical. Were led by the Spirit. Yet there are other Christians who stand back, almost with arms folded. We don't want to deal with that filthy, dirty culture. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to love and care. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He was a friend of sinners. And he was often criticized for getting around what Tim Keller calls creepy people. Don't back away altogether. Teach your children 
to engage the culture, not be soiled by it and not to ignore it, but to do what the Lord Jesus and what the Apostle Paul did, and that is engage out of love and respect for the name of God. Because that's what we see next. Paul's reaction to Athens led him to interaction with the Athenians. Look at verses 17 through 21. We have here three spheres, or three people groups, or three situations where Paul began to engage the people, particularly in verses 17 and 18. First of all, the Jews in the synagogue. Now, this was Paul's custom. Whenever he went to a city, it says, so he was reasoning in verse 17a, he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. First, in as usual practice, he sent and went to the synagogue and reasoned there with Jews and God-fearers. Just like in Thessalonica, he would have set out the Christ of Scripture. He would have proclaimed the Jesus of history. He would identify the two as heaven-sent Savior of sinners. You know, Jonathan Edwards considered the church the greatest field for evangelism. And we should rehearse the gospel often amongst ourselves. If there's one thing that people ought to know whenever they come to Christ Central Church, at least when they leave, is that they've heard the gospel, not just from the pulpit or in a Sunday school class, but in the lives of the individuals who are members of that church. Gossiping the gospel. Telling it to one another, rehearsing it to one another. Well, Paul went to the synagogue first. Then there were passers-by in the marketplace. Look at 17b. Second, he went to the Agora, we assume, the marketplace or center of public life. And here, he argued with casual passers-by on a day-by-day basis. He probably employed the famous Socratic method where he would ask questions of individuals. Why do you believe what you believe? Have you considered this? And he would mix one uh, scholar has called Paul a Christian Socrates of sorts. <laughs> the only difference with Socrates is Paul had a gospel that was real and true. Socrates never had anything of a sort. You know, there's a need for cold call evangelism. Not all cold call evangelism is bad. We Presbyterians may get that attitude sometimes, that we don't do that type of evangelism. But it needs to be done with courtesy and gentleness and respect. There are opportunities for us at work, leisure times, whenever we're on an airplane or in a restaurant or a club. I was reading a scholarly book the other day called Green Eggs and Ham, and uh, I was really stricken by Sam I Am. You know. He was relentless everywhere he was. He was trying to get green eggs and ham to his friend, and his friend, of course, didn't want it, but he was persistent until the very end of the book where the man realized I like green eggs and ham. But he was in a house with a mouse, in a box with a fox, car, plane, boat, you name it, you'll find Sam I Am. And that's the way Christians ought to be, relentless, when it comes to looking for opportunities to get the gospel over to a friend or someone we meet. I shared the gospel in a Morrison's cafeteria line one time, right before I got to the main course. You know, I stopped, and uh, I was able to plant a seed. I was able to plant a seed. Sometimes we'll reap a harvest. Sometimes we'll plant a seed. Sometimes we'll just say something very short, and that's it. And God will use that. 
And so Paul was mixing not only in the synagogue with those of the religious sort, but also the passers-by in the marketplace. And then verse 18a, he engaged the sophisticated philosophers of the day. Look at verse 18a. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing uh, with him. You know, the Epicureans were called the philosophers of the garden. It was founded by Epicurus, who died in 270 B.C. And what they taught was that the gods were remote, and they take no interest and have no influence on human affairs. The world is due to chance, and death is the bitter end, and there is no judgment afterwards. Kind of the modern fathers of existentialism. All that you have is in the here and now. There is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no judgment. We have people in our culture living that way today. God is irrelevant altogether because they don't know him. They've never met him. They've never had an experience. They've never made the discovery of knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That was the Epicureans. The result was pursue pleasure, enjoy a life detached from pain, passion, and fear. I have a relative that's dealing with this sort of thing right now. And I see it in the posts that they write and make public. That's the way the world has a tendency to influence people. The Stoics weren't much better. They were called the philosophers of the porch. They were founded by Zeno in 265 B.C. And they acknowledged a supreme God, but in a pantheistic way, confusing him with the, quote, world soul, end of quote. The result was the world was determined by fate, and human beings must pursue their duty, resigning themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason and develop their own self-sufficiency. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> in summary, the Epicureans emphasized chance, escape, and enjoyment of pleasure, while the Stoics emphasized fatalism, submission, and endurance of pain. And that's the kind of culture that the Apostle Paul Engaged. And folks, the culture hasn't changed that much. If you really think about that, whenever you interact with different individuals in your sphere, because you see, the synagogue is much like our modern-day church. And there are people that come to worship. They're religious people. They're seeking for the Christ. I know I joined a church and was baptized about five years before I was actually converted. <laughs> the Lord is always moving on hearts. We can't control when he touches a heart and opens the eyes. We can do everything we can to engage individuals to the Lord, but only he can convert. When I think about the passers-by in the marketplace, I think about where we recreate, where we work, wherever we find ourselves in a restaurant, we ought to give a winsome, careful, and courteous witness for Christ. Even if you leave a track for a waitress, don't leave a track and then leave no tip. I've known Christians that have done that. That's horrible. Leave a whopper of a tip along with a track. You want to get somebody's attention? Show them the money. <laughs> They'll listen to what you have to say. The Lord uses all sorts of ways to witness the gospel. When I think about the sophisticated philosophers of the day, I think about the university campus. Young people, as they prepare to go to college, don't be afraid to engage. Don't be nervous to engage. You know, these are the origins of modern hedonism and existentialism. There's nothing new under the sun. 
And people believed this sort of thing, and Paul was not reluctant to share with these intellectuals. He was conversant with what they thought and believed. We can see that because he quotes their own authors in his speech. And there is a great need for Christian thinkers in all spheres of life, in law and medicine and the arts and entertainment, teaching, education, research in universities. Don't be afraid, parents, to push your children in that direction. Seek to be sensitive to what God is doing in their lives. They might find themselves in one of these disciplines, one of these spheres, where God is going to particularly use them for His glory. But Paul's reaction drove him to relentless interaction with the Athenians. And his reaction and interaction should be ours, ladies and gentlemen, wherever God plants us, wherever we find ourselves. You know, in verses 18 through 20, the reaction of these various people groups was mixed. Some called him a babbler, and others expressed some degree of interest. Regardless of the reaction of the various philosophers, it led to one of the greatest opportunities of Paul's entire ministry, the presentation of the gospel to the world-famous Supreme Council of Athens at the Areopagus. You see, if you're afraid of being rejected, don't fear that. Sometimes that is the gauntlet or the passage of faith where God opens up another opportunity. What if Paul was so reluctant to share because he was afraid so much of what people would think about him, he would have never had the opportunity to speak at the Areopagus? Man, you want something that's going to charge your spiritual life is to see God open a door like that when you suffer for Him. And sometimes that suffering is just being laughed at or called a babbler. Sometimes it's more. But the Lord opens doors when He sees us act in faith like that. And so we find Paul. They bring him to the Areopagus. Some call him a babbler, but others want to know what he has to say. And so we begin that message quickly in verse 22 in the book of Acts 17. First of all, Paul gives a thesis statement. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you're very religious in all respects. But while I was passing through and examining the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. You see what Paul did? He tried to find a point of continuity, a point of common ground. And he called them, he complimented them, calling them religious. But he also made a bold claim. Here is a Jew who's going to enlighten a bunch of sophisticated Athenians because of their ignorance. And the thrust of Paul's speech is that special revelation must condition and correct all that general revelation seems to reveal to us. If we go through life simply looking at our world and looking at the way people practice and live, without the Word of God, we're not going to be conditioned to obey God. Paul is saying God has revealed himself, yes, in general, in the created order, but he's also revealed himself in the Scriptures and in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which he will get to in a few moments. And so general revelation must be conditioned by special revelation. You know, and for our purposes, it's vital to remember that the world, in all of its supposed wisdom, has no room for the metaphysical world, what is beyond our five senses. And pagans often believe many things which they can't prove. 
And the reason they can't prove them is they don't believe in a metaphysical world. All that is real to them is what they can see and smell and taste, whatever they can interact with their five senses. Their world is so limited. But the Christian realizes that there's a great world beyond us. And there is truth beyond our mere five senses. But the human mind is enslaved to blindness and faulty reasoning due to sin and corresponding alienation from God. Thus, human speculations are often postured as undeniable truth. Young people, be careful again. As you go to college and universities, you'll hear every kind of assault in the world on your faith. And the reason for that is misery loves company. Misery loves company. First Peter, it says that, or Second Peter, the people who practice ungodliness, they revel. They love to spread their false gospel because it makes them more comfortable when others don't believe as well. Well, look at the points of Paul's message clearly. The Apostle Paul goes on to proclaim the living and true God in five ways, and so to expose the errors, even the horrors of man's idolatry. And I want you to notice this message is both comforting and convicting. It's comforting to see the beauty and the majesty of Almighty God. It's convicting because Paul makes us realize that we all human beings are subject to the authority and the judgment of this God. First of all, notice he says, God is the creator of all things. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. In other words, you cannot confine God to a building. You cannot escape his presence and all-seeing eye. I think of that little book that J.B. Phillips wrote a long time ago, Perhaps Your God or Gods May Be Too Small. Paul demonstrated the greatness and the glory of God. And he was saying, man's attempt to make God in our image is a huge mistake. And it's owed to the sinful effects upon the human mind. I've listened to so many arguments lately of this whole issue of the Supreme Court eliminating abortion on demand across the nation, at least giving it to the states to decide, and how people appeal to the 14th Amendment. I read the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, and nowhere is there anything said about the right to terminate life. In fact, just the opposite. You have the right to life and liberty and property. But that's the mind of a pagan. It's blind. It doesn't see clearly. And therefore, its deductions and its conclusions are often extremely wrong. God is the creator of all things. Secondly, verse 25, God is the source and sustainer of life. Paul goes on to say, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God doesn't depend on man, but the reverse. Paul's making that clear. We depend on this great God. He himself gives life to all people. Your life is a gift from God. And everything you have, including your next breath, is a gift from God. You know what Paul's doing? He's giving them truth. Because so often that's what God is reduced to, a vending machine or a genie in a bottle. 
whenever we talk to individuals, their whole concept and their viewpoint of God is, is jaundice at best, and just downright wrong at worst. God is the source and sustainer of life. But notice thirdly, he mentions God is sovereign ruler over the world. He made, verse 26, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Look at this. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Isn't that comforting? When you think your life is in a spiral, out of control, just remember that God, this sovereign Lord of the universe who created the heavens and the earth, has a sovereign care over your life. And He determines the boundary lines for you. Where, you're, where you'll be. What you'll be doing. Your appointed times. And the boundaries of your habitation. What a secure, comforting thought that God is in control of my life. And you'll notice the great objective that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. God's plan objective is to human beings to seek after Him and to enjoy Him, because we were created to do so. And all of our plans and objectives in life shrink in insignificance in comparison with God's plans. It also says He's close and interested, not far away and detached like the Epicureans believe. He's not far from each one of us. That's because God is personal. We know that from the Scriptures. God gave us His law. He gave us His revelation. Finally, He gave us His Son to live and die on a cross and to be raised from the grave in order that we might have atonement for our sins. And you'll notice the personal note here. He goes on, God is the Father of human beings. Look at 28 and 29. For in Him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are His children. You know, pagans know truth. It's just that they suppress it, according to Paul in Romans 1. And that's why they get so angry so often whenever truth is presented to them. And so Paul goes on saying, being then the children or the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, or image formed by the art and thought of man. You know, when Paul says that you are children of God, he doesn't mean that in a spiritual sense. He means it because God is the progenitor of the entire human race. In that sense, he's the father of all human beings. But we know spiritually we don't become children of God until we are adopted into the family based on our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But once again, Paul is reaching out and saying, in some sense, he is your father. And you are in rebellion to him. And he has provided a way for you to come back into the family unit. Just like the prodigal son. Change your mind, Paul is saying. Don't think of God this way. Turn and repent of your faulty understanding and your ignorance of God. Then he closes with judgment. God is the judge of the world in verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, notice how he began with ignorance and he ends with ignorance. God is commanding all everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world through a man, furnishing proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has been patient and gracious in spite of our ignorance, but he's calling for and he demands repentance. 
That is acknowledging my need and his fatherhood and lordship over my life. And taking advantage of the way back to him that he has furnished through Jesus Christ. Remember, this feature sermon is really kind of a transcript from Dr. Luke. It doesn't have all the elements of what was actually said. But you can't talk about a resurrection without talking about a death. So more than likely, Paul mentioned the crucifixion of Christ and how that Christ was raised from the dead. I want you to notice just a couple of things about this. Paul believed and presented a comprehensive gospel. He didn't just say, accept Jesus and be saved. I mean, this entire thing shows the whole counsel of God. He speaks of God as the creator, the sustainer of life, the sovereign ruler of the world, the father of all human beings in a restricted sense. The fact that he's going to judge the world. There is a heaven, there is a hell, and there is a day of accountability. It wasn't just all grace. (laughs) No, Paul presented a balanced, comprehensive gospel. I think that's what our world wants these days, or at least will listen to is that we take it seriously enough so that they take it seriously. Well, the conclusion is some of them believed, most of them rejected. And that's always the way it is. We look at Paul and we say, oh, I wish I could speak like Paul. Oh, I wish I were like the Apostle Paul. No, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And if you want to speak like Paul, you don't have to be an intellectual. But you have to feel what Paul feels. And in order to feel what Paul feels, you have to see what Paul saw. And so that applies to all of us when we look at our culture and we see the idolatry that is practiced in the name of God, basically slander. There should be a jealousy and a zeal, not only to see it, but to feel it. And feel it so strongly that we are driven to this interaction and ultimately a presentation of the gospel. May God bless all of us as we interact with a very ungodly world, a world that is so confused, a nation that is going backwards instead of forward, morally and intellectually. May God raise up Christians to penetrate the darkness with the light of life and the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and his example. We pray, Lord, that you would engage all of us to follow, follow Paul as he follows Christ. Lord, give us eyes to see. Open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see the reality of these truths. Help us, Lord, to feel deeply, yes, about lost people, but more so about your name and your glory and majesty. Help us to know you better, Lord, that we might feel these things and then take advantage of those opportunities that you give to each one of us. Lord, bless us to that end. And if there's one or two here this morning that have never known you, I pray that, Lord, you'd open their hearts and that the gospel would be believed and that, Lord, you would sovereignly bring them back into the family and into the kingdom. Lord, do all of your holy will and more. We'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.